some specific people that God has used in powerful ways to draw us to the deeper levels of maturity and life and joy and all those things. And yet, if we're honest, every single one of those people on some level probably failed us, wronged us, or hurt us. Right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not so dumb as to think that's not true of me to you guys right here and right now. Like, if you spent enough time with me, I guarantee at some point I put my foot in my mouth or I've not returned a call or I've not shown up to something you wanted me to show up to. And I know I've heard you guys. That's, that's part of the deal, right? The most godly, important people in our lives are still people. And they're not, they're just not good enough to be our Savior. Just like we're not good enough to be our own. It's just... It just, like, people, whether it's us or other people in our lives, are just going to fall short. And I think our text is going to exemplify that for us in a way that hopefully will point us to the goodness and love and presence and grace of our Jesus. Sound good? Good. That's a lot of intro. We're in Esther, in chapter 8, starting in verse 1. The first verse, the 8th chapter of the book of Esther, we read this. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, she's really like playing the right here. Let the order, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king, and sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. Then the king's scribes were summoned at that time, in the third month, which is the month of seven, on the twenty-third day, and the edict was written, according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and governors, the officials of the provinces, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters on mounted carriers, riding off on swift horses, and they were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, said that the king had allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force or people or province that might attack them, children and women included, to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province. 
being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on swift horses that were used in the king's service and rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes, blue and white, the great golden crown, a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews have light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and every city, wherever the king commanded and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy amongst the Jews. A feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, on the twelfth month, which is the month of Abra, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought them harm. And no one could stand against them, for fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of all the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame had spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And they also killed, are you ready for this? Parshatta, Dalpan, and Fasa, and Poratha, and Adelia, and Rabathiah, and Parmishka, and Arasi, and Aradi, and Vaisthada, the ten sons of Haman, and the son, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hands on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, but please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done, and a decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. And the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa. But they laid no hands in the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's province also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. For the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, the holiday, and this day on which they send gifts of food to one another. This, beloved of Jesus, is the word of the Lord. A long one. I don't know if I've done one that long before. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of your word in your church and your family. 
This morning, as we take a few minutes to talk about this story and pick apart this text, God, there is stuff in here that is confusing. There's stuff in this text that is disturbing. There's stuff in this text that is encouraging. So, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would be our disciple today. That you would be our guide. That you would illuminate your scriptures. That you would give our eyes and our ears clarity to see you and hear from you. And that we would leave this morning having been discipled by you and having heard from you. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's, let's take a minute to kind of, kind of summarize the story, right? Uh, I really think this is, this is going to be good for us. I think we're just going to land on this place of, of really focusing on the goodness of God who loves us so much that he'll work out his plan of salvation and redemption regardless of the circumstances or the effects of the curse. And as we'll see, by the way, I think this, I think this just kind of highlights our need for God to intervene in human history. We, we need God to intervene in the world, in our world, in a radical way if we're going to experience anything like real freedom or real salvation. But I am getting ahead of myself. I'm, I'm going to come back to that thought a lot. What, what is the essence of our massive text today. Last week we got the big reveal, right? Jesse Hannard that handled this masterfully. We had the final, like the, the scene where Esther finally reveals who she is. And it's this dramatic back and forth of this intimate scene with just the king and just Esther and Haman. And it all comes out in the king's anger and, and the, the wicked, evil, bad guy, right? Begging for mercy and getting his just desserts. It's, I mean, it's just this perfect climax scene for the story, right? And it ends with Haman dead on his own gallows and the king ready and waiting to help God's people who are in distress. So when our text picks up, it basically goes like this. First, Mordecai is raised up and elevated to Haman's position. He becomes immediately the right-hand advisor to the king. And Esther asks the king to revoke his original order to destroy the Jews, Haman's original order. The king responds surprisingly. He cannot revoke the order. The king's order apparently can't be revoked once ordered. So instead, he gives his new right-hand man, Mordecai, authority to write any new edict he wishes in regards to the matter. And here is Mordecai's solution to the problem. Every Jew in all of Persia is allowed to gather and defend themselves against their attackers. And not just defend themselves, but they're actually allowed by this decree to destroy anyone who means them harm and then plunder them. So this law gets spread out over the whole of the province and the people prepare. And they really want you to know how that law was spread out. Those horses, those were... Bread for the king's son, specifically for delivering messages, I guess. I don't, I don't know why that detail is necessary, but uh, it is. <laughs> so this law gets spread out over the whole province, and the people start to prepare. And I think this is interesting, right? Because this doesn't solve the problem. There's still plenty of danger 
in the air with this solution. It's just that now it's more like a purge situation than it is like just a legalized genocide. You've seen the purge, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? It's just this kind of like, look, they're going to come try and kill you. You can fight back. It's just kind of your own deal. No one's going to intervene. You just kind of do you, and it'll work out in the end. It's just really wild if you think about it in that regard. But they're still in a better position than they were previously, right? Now, chapter 9 gives us the actual scene. The day arrives. This whole thing was planned out and distributed and communicated months ahead of time. But on chapter 9, it takes us straight to the day. The day that wicked Haman determined by lot to destroy the entire Jewish race. And I think chapter 9 spells it out in this, this vivid way. Right? You can imagine the scene. If you can think of these houses and homes and communities around the empire, Jewish families, right, huddled together, barricaded in homes with, with improvised weapons, awaiting any potential violence against them. And you would think that the, just the reality of the law might scare people away and that they might pass relatively uneventfully, but apparently there were enough people in the Persian Empire who either really hated the Jewish people or were just that unscrupulous and evil because the mobs arrived. And you can imagine the scene, the, the, the communities and people huddled together, and then there comes that mob over the horizon, coming toward their homes, coming toward their families, coming toward their kids. And the pe these people are actually going to try and make good on Haman's decree. And then we get one of the most amazing verses in all of Esther. In, in chapter 9, verse 1, the part of it says, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. And the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The reverse occurred. Because this is, this is Esther summed up. The reverse occurred. What looked like complete and total defeat for God's people became complete and total defeat for the enemies of God's people. I mean, wow. If you had to distill the whole book into one sentence, it would be that sentence. Satan had intentions. You know, you hear that whole, that whole, that old, like, Baptist pastor phrase, like, God loves you and he has a plan for your life. Then some pastors turn on their head and go, yeah, well, Satan hates you and he has a plan for your life also. It's just not good. We see that There is an enemy of God who desires to see God's kingdom thwarted and God's people destroyed. And he was working through human history to accomplish just that. Very real expressions of evil, of the curse, working to destroy God's people. And it looked bad. It looked really bad. The most powerful man in the world decreed their genocide, legally protected. And the day was coming, and it was just happened to be set up in a culture where for some reason, when the king's ring stamps that thing, it's done. You can't take it back. There's no take-backsies. That day, the 13th day of the month of Adar, is coming one way or the other. It looked really bad. And yet, in the moment, the reverse occurred. I mean, how 
good is our God? How powerful and sovereign is our God that even in the midst of all this mess, of all this mess of human sinfulness and righteousness, that God's sovereignty still reigned and his people were still redeemed and the reverse occurred. The Jewish people conquered their enemies. It says that even the political leaders across the empire ended up siding with the Jews and helping the Jewish people. And guys, this, by the way, is where the scene kind of turns. As you make your way farther into Esther 9, it goes from like, wow, this is really cool, to This is a little gruesome. In that day, literally thousands of people are slaughtered across the Persian Empire. It says that Haman's ten sons are found out and killed. And then we get perhaps the most disturbing part of the entire Esther story. And if you've been with us from the beginning, Esther's a pretty jacked up story, right? Like there's some contenders for the most disturbing part. But I really think Esther 9 takes the cake. Because at the end of the day, the king gets the report of what has happened all across his empire. He reports it to Esther and says, man, a ton of people have died because of that decree you set up. That's sick. Anything else you want, babe? And she's like, yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's do this again tomorrow. And the king's like, sweet, let's do it. And they do. They go for another day. More fighting, more killing. The dead bodies of Haman's sons are cast upon his gallows. Literally thousands of people across the empire are killed. And the story ends by reaffirming something that's said a couple times over the course of this passage. And then with another feast scene. And the feast scene is really going to lead us into our last chunk of Esther next week. But let me talk about this first piece. The first, the author reminds us several times over the course of this section of text that the Jews laid no hands on the child. I don't know if you saw that. It's mentioned several times. The idea here is the Jewish people were not operating in the same place of vindictiveness as the rest of the church and You see, Mordecai wrote a decree to protect the Jews in the language of the Persian Empire. We're not, we're not talking about a modern society. The Persian Empire was an ancient and brutal culture where, where individual human life had little to no value. I mean, look at the actual predicament they're in, right? The king of this empire was willing to sentence an entire people group to genocidal death just because one of his advisors said they were rebellious. No investigation, no fact-checking, no second opinion. He's just like, they sound bad? Yeah, go ahead, kill them all. Sounds good to me. That's, that's the kind of culture we're talking about. Violence and expressions of strength were a deep and abiding part of Persian culture. And so when Mordecai wrote a decree on the behalf of his people, he wrote in the language and culture of Persian. This whole thing about how the king can't revoke an order, by the way, that almost certainly wasn't a real law. That's insane. You can't operate, you can't operate an empire like that. You're like, once we put a law in place, that's it. It's just a thing. You just have to deal with it. There's no changing it. That's insane. 
And by the way, we have a ton of historical record about Persia. There is zero evidence that was actually long. The real thing is that Xerxes is an incredibly prideful, arrogant dude who cares a ton about looking bad and being embarrassed. And he actually declared himself God in human form. And so when he declared a law, of course it was perfect. He's not going to go back on that. He's God in human form. His laws are the words of God, right? Even though he didn't write it, he and his ring and his pen to someone else. He's not going to let himself be publicly embarrassed. So his laws are unrevocable. That's insane. Mordecai, to protect his people in, the, in this insane context where he finds himself, writes an incredibly violent decree that everyone in Persia would understand. His people weren't to be taken lightly. But when the violence actually goes down, the Jews don't take any plunder. And the reason the author wants us to hear this is that God's people are not like the Persians. They weren't killing just for power, just for pride, just for revenge. They were defending themselves and preserving their people. They showed their teeth and they fought. But they did so differently. They laid their hands on the plunder. Which is, which is, it's why our story ends the way it does. With this huge feast. And we'll spend, by the way, our whole time next week talking about this, so I don't want to I don't want to get ahead of myself, but for our purposes today, what we need to know is that the Jewish people saw this entire exchange as an expression of God's salvation in their lives. So they set a feast day to remember the day when the reverse occurred. It should not have gone down that way, but it did. Which wraps our story back to our very first Sunday in Esther. I don't know how many of you guys were there. But we talk about how the book of Esther is asking this question. Are the exiled Jews, the Jews living under Persian captivity, who didn't go home when they had the opportunity, are they still under God's covenant blessing? Purim, as we'll talk about next week, distinctly answers this question. Yes. God is for his people. And he protects them regardless of their poor choices, or their wise choices, or their pleasant circumstances, or their unpleasant circumstances. And that's the story. That's what we have today. Which I think leaves us with this one distinctly big question. Because it's kind of, right, it's kind of easy to wrap your head around this story-wise. Like, we can work through it, and there's a lot there. But we can kind of hold that whole scene in our head. I think the hard part for us, for most of us at least, probably simply has to do with the violence. I mean, on a level, it's understandable. They had to arm themselves to defend their families and children. I don't think anyone begrudges God's people that. But it gets a little harder to justify chapter 9 when Esther's like, that was sick, let's do it again. And they just take a whole other day to go killing. That feels like that kind of crosses a line from self-defense to brutality. And when you go, well, you're trying to kind of show how you're not like the Persians, but that would I don't know, man, that would have seemed pretty Persian, right? Like that, 
like a set-apart holy people kind of move? Was it, was it actually necessary to have the extra day to kill him? And by the way, this chunk is the single most debated part of this entire book. For thousands of years, rabbis and Christians and theologians have looked at this text and been like, well, why the heck did you do that? And try to justify it one way or the other. I think this, I think Esther 89 gives us, I think it's vital to our understanding of the beauty and truth of this text. So, so follow me on this. I think Esther 89 gives us this little microcosm of the entire Old Testament problem and the entire problem of the Old Covenant. This passage gives us this concise little window into exactly why God is so generous to send Jesus on our behalf. This is the perfect picture of Old Covenant. God will preserve his people. He will act in human history through flawed human beings to do his work, to work his will, to advance his kingdom. In this case, he used the flawed and sinful people of Mordecai and Esther and King Xerxes to preserve his people from annihilation at the hands of their enemies. But just like Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Gideon, Samuel, Saul, David, and hundreds of others who came before them, they were sinful, broken people who did their best. And God worked through them to accomplish his purposes. But the plain reality is that when you get right down to it and you look at it, it can be so encouraging to see God's grace that he, you know, to use the preacher term, he draws straight lines with crooked sticks, right? He, he works through flawed, sinful people. But if you're, if you're honest on a gut level, we have to acknowledge that we look at some of these guys and some of these men and some of these women and we just go, that just isn't enough at the end of the day. It just, it just isn't enough. History tells us that usually when an oppressed people is freed from oppression, they will take that opportunity to oppress their oppressors. That's usually how it goes. By the way, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, are case study number one. God intervened in human history to free them from immense and terrible unjust bondage and slavery within Egypt. And within three generations, God's chosen people were enslaving everyone they could get their hands on. Solomon's temple was built mostly with slave labor. I mean, it's brutal, right? So this is this right here just another case of an oppressed becoming an oppressor when they get power? Is that, is that what happens here? This, this, this little oppressed refugee Jewish orphan girl by, by the luck of the draw gets to be one of the most powerful people in the nation and she uses her power to get an upper hand over her enemies. I mean, honestly? Yeah. Yeah. That's part of the story. We can talk about why Esther and Mordecai chose to do this. I'm sure they were doing their best to make wise choices to protect their people. There were lots of folks who hated the Jewish people. I mean, they were willing to go straight purge mode when England's order went out. There's a lot of built-up 
anger and evil within this culture, Esther and Mordecai were honestly probably just trying to set the stage for their people to be protected from violence for as long as possible. We understand that. But we have to acknowledge that their vehicle to get there was violence. I mean, in one day, 75,000 human beings were slaughtered around the Persian Empire. That is a lot of human lives, precious, made in God's image. We would be remiss if we just ignored this part of the story so that we could grab a hold of a comforting spiritual analogy, right? Wow, the reverse occurred. Man, God has reversed terrible things in my life. I'm, I'm telling you guys, that's true. But that reversal didn't involve me going on a killing spree. That's never happened in my faith journey. Some of you are like, that's not normal. No, no, that's not normal. The killing spree part's not usually part of our faith journey. We can and we must acknowledge the human brokenness in our stories being carried. Should, think of it this way, should Esther have asked for a second day to kill a whole bunch of people after her people were already saved? No! No, she should not have done that! But she did. And it's part of the story. And it's preserved for us. And we learn amazing things about our God in this event. First, we learn that he is so powerful and he is so loving, and he is so sovereign, that he can work through any circumstance to accomplish his will. Even one where people make multiple sinful and bad choices, God worked through the Persian Empire and Xerxes and Haman and Esther and Mordecai in all their mixture of sinfulness and righteousness to preserve his people and move his kingdom forward. Beloved of Jesus, if our God can work through that to accomplish his purposes and move his story of redemption forward, then you can trust in the power of God to move redemption forward in your life, in our time, in our place. It does not matter how bad the circumstances may seem. Our God is powerful and he will accomplish his will on this planet here and now. Praise be to God. But second, and I really want us to take a minute here, Esther shows us this microcosm of what the whole Old Testament shows us. We need a better Savior than what humankind can offer. We need something better. We need something more than what humanity has to bring to the table. A human Savior, no matter how good they may be, will always still be sinful. They will be a mixture of good and bad decisions, of sinfulness and righteousness. And beloved Jesus, if this story tells us anything, if our lives tell us anything, it's that that is not enough. There is no one in your life, no one you've known, and no one you will know, who is capable of giving you what your heart truly needs. They may try, and there are a lot of people who will try, who will do their absolute best. Godly, righteous people who love you and care for you, and their absolute best 
will still be a mixture of sinfulness and righteousness and good and bad decisions. Beloved Jesus, we need God to intervene in human history. We need Him to intervene to save us, to complete us. Praise be to God.
A real Savior isn't a mixture of good and bad, isn't a mixture of, of righteous and sinful motives, isn't a mixture of good and bad decisions. The real Savior actually makes a way for you to be made complete and made alive and have the eternity that you are actually built and designed for, which is eternity with Him. Jesus is that Savior. Our God knew that humanity was not enough to save. That we needed perfection. That we needed God himself. And so he sent God himself. The love of Jesus. You and I are in desperate need of a Savior. And his name is Jesus. He exists. He has done the work on our behalf. It is available to you and to me. Regardless, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of how much power the evils of this world may like it have, regardless of how dire things may look, we serve a God who is so sovereign that he can work through any and every circumstance to bring about his kingdom. And he is not made it dependent on any man or any woman. The, the most godly, amazing gift, your spouse, your best friend, your disciple, they're such blessings and they're amazing, but you are not dependent on them. Because God sent Jesus. And you have access to him. No other Savior you might call upon or trust in can actually care for you like Jesus does. The one true I'm going to pray in just a second. And Chris is going to come back up here and we're going to sing a song. We're going to spend some time in reflective prayer. And I'm going to invite you guys to just let the song be sung over you. I know it's like, whatever. You probably don't want it anyway. It's a new one. I just want to invite you. Let, let the song be sung over you and take a few minutes, whether you're at home, you're living here, whether you're here in this space with us, and spend a few moments with you. I want to give you a very specific image. Now, there's a very famous passage when Jesus was teaching. You find it in Matthew in the Mark world, where he says, He says, Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy, my burden is Take my yoke upon you. It's a beautiful image, right? An image of, of God who's tender, who's present with you. But, but, but I want to give you just a step, a look into the actual word picture Jesus was painting. I want this to be something just to kind of guide us in our reflection and prayer for a few moments. See, in that day, if you needed to plow a field, you had your oxen, you set them on two oxen, you put a yoke on them, it was really important to make sure your oxen were equally yoked at the same amount of strength. Otherwise, your plow lines would be very crazy. But if you had an ox who was young, who was weak, who was sick, maybe who was untrained. The only way to train them up was to find an ox who is insanely stronger than them. Like significantly more mature, more better trained, better than them. And you yoke them together. And the stronger ox would drag the other one along and keep the line straight. Even though the other one was whatever. It was insufficient. 
When Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, what he's saying is, listen, I'm a stronger ox. I will carry the load, it will be on my shoulders. You can just lean into me, and I will keep the line straight. I will carry the load on your back. Beloved, this is the invitation of our Jesus. He's made a way for you. If you are in this space and you have known Jesus as your Savior for the last 30 years, and you're going, Pastor, this is a really cool gospel presentation, but, but I know this stuff. I want to encourage you, come back to your Jesus afresh today because you will never, never graduate past the need of your Savior. You need today as much as you did the first time. You need every day. So, I want to open this up in prayer. I will encourage you, take a few minutes, speak with your Jesus, meditate with him, imagine, imagine yourself as that weak ox, leaning into the stronger ox, that he might pull the burden on your back. Imagine the strength and love and tender presence of your real Savior, who carries you, who is enough Enough for whatever your life is going Jesus, you are so good. Oh, you're so good, Jesus. I confess to you right now, and I put, I put so much weight on human saviors. I lean into friends and mentors and disciples. I, I put impossible tasks on their shoulders to complete me, to make me better, to make my life what it should be. But I confess to you today, I am a really weak ox and desperately